Good morning. You may notice I am not Greg Brady. Uh, thank you. Uh, Greg, next week, is going to be in Michigan taking a week-long set of classes at Calvin Seminary where he's working on his um, doctorate degree in divinity. He has homework to do this week. So he gets this week off, and he will be gone for a few weeks after this uh, as he's up at his class. And so I'm uh, standing in as will Pierre next week. I have learned, I've been in Michigan the last two weeks. I have learned that my best route here is to start with a joke. Since Jack Chrissy isn't here, I decided to not go with the engineering joke. But, but I have them. You know, so, Paul, if you need any, although we'll move on. So, preacher, uh, you know, a Protestant preacher, because otherwise he'd be called a priest, probably, right? Preacher is being chased in the woods by a large grizzly bear and exhausted after like half a mile. He falls on his knees and he prays to God, says, God, please save me from this bear. He looks around, he sees the bear also on its knees with its paws together. And the preacher says, thank you, Lord, it's a Christian bear. And the bear says, for this food I'm about to receive, Lord, I give you thanks. To continue the theme of being bold in our faith, we're going to talk a little bit today about Alcana and Hannah. And here's the conclusion. So, Listen to this. Hopefully, this will help you put other pieces in place. We're not famous like Billy Graham, Dwight Moody, Beth Moore, or Samuel. Right? Those people are published. Their names are recognizable. In a sense, we are believers in obscurity. Think about this, though. We're only obscure by earthly terms. We think about fame as do more than ten people recognize your name? Have you written a book? If you've written a book, is your name as the author bigger than the name of the title? That's earthly fame. In God's eyes, we're all the same. Billy Graham's in heaven. I plan on going there too. There we have it, right? And so sometimes when we read the Bible, we see, oh, here's what Paul's doing, or John the Baptist, or Samuel, or King David. And we tend to put them up on, eh, maybe not pedestals, but at least a footstool, right? And say, oh, they're special. Or we look at, even in today's society, we look at Greg and say, oh, he's trained, he's special. That's not the point of the Bible, and that's what we're going to talk about today, is that we are called to be bold with our faith wherever we happen to be. 
God blesses some people with great speaking skills. Think about Billy Graham. When I was a kid, he was still doing um, his big evangelism rallies. And I've since watched some of them on, in reruns. It's like, he's a powerful speaker. And you say, thank you. I, I'm not like that. You're probably not like that. If you are, let me know. Um, but that's okay. God calls us in our role as human beings to maybe be believers in obscurity, but not obscure in our faith. So we're going to look at then Hannah and Elkanah. Oh, before I get to that. Oh, no, we'll move on. Here we go. Hannah, Elkanah, they are the parents of the prophet Samuel in the Old Testament. Samuel's relatively famous. He was in charge of Israel for, for maybe 10, 20 years. He anointed Saul to be the next king and so on. His parents get a little bit in the Bible, but not very much. And we're going to look at them because, in a sense, they too are believers in obscurity. But we can learn from them. What does that, what does that mean for us as also um, not the title of a book of the Bible. So, a little bit of background about the book of 1 Samuel. There's a series of books, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, and Kings, that appear to have been compiled at approximately the same time, later in the kingdom of Judah's history. So they have this, a little bit of the same tone. It's a historical narrative. Here's what happened after Moses and Joshua were in charge, a period of the judges. Ruth and Boaz are here. Then Samuel, the book of Samuel, the book of Kings, I've learned. First and second Samuel is split into two books because back in the day when they wrote the books of the Bible on scrolls, the scroll got too big. So they split it into part A and part B. So first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. The first and second part is an arbitrary division dating back to when they had you know, rolls of parchment that they wrote on, and OSHA required that each parchment could not ex- exceed um, 50 pounds each. Samuel is not the author of, of the book of Samuel. His name is associated with it as the, one of the main characters actually through a significant part of First and Second Samuel. We'll refer to the, the city of Shiloh, which it, this, this story takes place in the tribe of Ephraim. I don't have a map. Think about Jerusalem in the middle of Israel. Ephraim is like one tribe north, mostly rural as almost all the tribes were, because Jerusalem was not established yet as the capital city. All 12 tribes had their areas of of land or cities, and it was mostly agrarian. They planted a little bit of food. They raised sheep. Um, There was no central authority. Shiloh was really sort of the capital of Ephraim. Each tribe had a city that was dedicated to the Levites, or given to the Levites. So that's where the local center of worship was. So Shiloh was a major Israelite worship center, again, before Jerusalem. 
Um, Bethel is another city that you may be familiar with. It was another such, uh, such city. Again, Jerusalem wasn't the capital of Israel yet. That was established maybe 30-some years later when David was made king, and then Solomon built the temple after that. So, we're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 1. So please take out your, your Bible. Um, there are many Bibles in the seats ahead in front of you or on your device at home. First Samuel chapter 1, the first 20 verses. There was a certain man from Ramathiam, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tahu, the son of Zuth, and Ephraimite. This would basically establish his, his credentials. He's a real person. Sort of fort as a sidebar. There are some people around here, you know, someone whose name is Samuel, that's okay. I don't know anybody named Tohu or Suf, for which we are thankful. So, verse 2. Elkanah had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival, Penina, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, they, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept praying to the Lord, Eli, the priest, observed her mouth. She was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice wasn't heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. 
I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Hannah said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah slept with his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, because I asked the Lord for him. So we're going to look at Elkanah for a few minutes. Then we're going to look at Hannah for a few minutes. This is the only place in the Bible where these two people appear. They're not famous in their own right. They're famous because they're the parents of Samuel. Just as if one of my kids won the Nobel Prize in chemistry, I'd get a little bit of fame too, right? But this is it. Elkanah is a farmer. He's a fourth-generation Ephraimite. He's been around a while. Um, it says elsewhere in the Bible that lists that he's also a descendant of Levi, but apparently a shirt tail. So his role is not as a priest, as a Levite. He's a farmer. He's an observant Jew, which means that once a year, he gets his family together and takes a sheep or two, perhaps, and they go the, whatever, 20, 30 miles to Shiloh to make sacrifices to the Lord. Takes his family with him. Might take a week. If you're a subsistence farmer, you can't take a week off from work. He's so evidently wealthy enough so that he can do this, and he does. And if you think about Old Testament practices, this is, he's an observant Jew. He's following the practices. He goes every year. He brings his kids with him so that they can observe and learn. So he's a, a good, he's a good pra- practicing Jewish family dad, right? He's bringing along his kids in the faith. Here's something that's very interesting, though. He loved Hannah. Hannah didn't have any kids. His other wife, Penina, was a bit of a shrew because she would push Hannah's hot buttons all the time. I've got sons and you don't have any. But Elkanah loved Hannah. The evidence. He gives Hannah a double portion of the sacrifice. So clearly Hannah is the, the favored wife, even though no kids. When Hannah is really upset after being teased, Elkanah comes to comfort her. He doesn't say, oh, get over it, you know, don't bother me with that. He comforts her. And he says, is not my love for you worth ten sons? In that day, sons were, were the bastion of your family estate. If you didn't have sons, 
A, there's nobody to leave the estate to, and B, no one to work the farm. Ten sons would be overflowing with blessings because you, that means you've got ten people to go out work the field. It means you can do more. You're, that's a sign of great wealth. And Elkanah says, I don't care that you don't have a son. Our love is worth ten sons. And this is, for, I don't know of any other place in the Bible where that kind of family love is portrayed. Think about this a little bit. Let's think about some couples. Abraham and Sarah, they were married for years and years and years, but it never describes them as a family only in the relationships who, oh, I don't have kids, here comes a passerby. I mean, there's a narrative of what happens to have Isaac born, but it doesn't talk about the love. Uh, David had, had several wives. Abigail is, is certainly phrased with great affection, but this is quite unusual. Um, in the New Testament, there's maybe one famous couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, but only says they were very old and they didn't have kids. So I think this is really cool because in the Old Testament times especially, men, heads of household, love didn't come, really come into the picture very much. They were in charge of the household. Everybody else was subservient. That's not the case here. Elkanah shows love for Hannah, supports her. So then also then, when Samuel is born, here's the son. Elkanah supports Hannah's promise to give this child to God. Because remember, this is a son who is now a, a, at least a partial heir to the estate, a good farmhand, and, and, and Elkanah says, you made a promise to God. I support you in that promise. So think about that. As a believer in obscurity, the Bible shows Elkanah as a loving dad, or loving husband, certainly, and loving to the point of overtly supporting his spouse, to the point of saying, Hannah made a promise to God that this son was going to go into the ministry, and not at age 18, at age 2. Traditionally, they say when he was weaned, call it age 2, that's when he was brought to the temple for the rest of his life. Elkanah supported that. So that's a good example for us. That's the only place Elkanah shows up in the Bible, and he's portrayed not as an, an, an aloof man, but a loving spouse. Let's have a look at Hannah. She's perhaps a little more famous to us. For those of you that have read the Bible, she's known as, before I started looking at it, she's known as the woman that prayed in the temple to have a son, and she got a son, and she brought him to the temple at a very young age, and then this guy had a phenomenal career as the leader of Israel. Hannah, so that's really that's about what we know about Hannah. 
if you've not read chapter 1 five times, like I have. So, no kids, which was a shame, considered to be shameful for a family or for a, a, a wife in that day and age because it meant you're not providing your husband with a son. And we talked about how important sons are. So it is frequently portrayed, not just, sometimes not just shameful, but as punishment. Oh, you don't have a son. You must have done something wrong. Okay? So Hannah took, as you can see, Hannah took this really seriously. Because in her anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. This was a really big deal for Hannah. But then we think about what happens next. Well, here, she goes to, to pray to God. And we think about that and say, okay, that's pretty normal. In Old Testament times, ordinary people didn't just go pray to God. The priest's role was to be the intermediary between you and God and back and forth. So for an ordinary, especially an ordinary woman, to go to the tabernacle and pray to God directly was very unusual. And we see other places where if you're going to come talk to God, you bring a sacrifice, you go to the priest, you burn the sacrifice, and the priest gives prayers on your behalf. So here, Hannah breaks the rules, perhaps the real rules, and prays to God directly. So she's, she is in, in such anguish, she says, I'm talking to God directly. She is bold. She is confident in her own place. You know, she doesn't go beat up on her husband or take it out on her, you know, Penina, her, the other wife. She goes to God. And here's the second thing that's very interesting here. Eli is the, the senior priest. It says here that his sons were the, the working priests. He's in retirement. He's got his easy chair sitting at the door, gate of the, of the tabernacle, the worship area. He is the senior person, perhaps in the whole tribe. And he says... Are you drunk? Come on, get out of here. And think about that. This, the, you know, I mean, Eli is not a believer in obscurity in the tribe of Ephraim. Hannah is. And Hannah, with her courage, says, No, I'm not drunk. I am pouring out my heart to God. And so Hannah has the, is given the courage. I'm going to speculate here. Under any ordinary day, someone like Hannah might have caved and said, oh, sorry, 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 and scuttered. I firmly believe here that the Holy one reason it's in the Bible in the first place is that the Holy Spirit is shown here to be working in Elkanah and in Hannah to make things work out for, God, for the good of the people of Israel. So in a very straightforward manner, she disagrees with the priest and says, no, I'm not drunk. I've been praying to the Lord because I am upset and I needed to talk to God. 
The other th- and now, let's add to it. Eli changes his course. So Eli is humble enough to not be on his soapbox and say, don't you disagree with me? But he says, oh, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant what you have asked of him. And now Hannah is relieved. She's gotten a, she's gotten a blessing from the priest. She has poured out her soul to God. And now he's able, she's able to go on with, with, what's, with, with her life. So she's more than just Samuel's mom. She clearly has a faith in God because she prays to him and expects God to fix things for her. She's frustrated for not having kids, which is a very culturally appropriate thing. She's blessed with Elkanah as a husband who supports her. She prays. She prays. And she follows through. What a good role model for uh, us to see in Hannah and also in Elkanah. So here's what's happened next. Samuel is born about a year later, at probably at about the age of two, once he's weaned. If you're two, you're probably not potty trained yet. That's Eli's problem, I guess. <laughs> Goes off to the, to the temple, and he has his own career. And we see here, too, Elkanah supported Hannah's prayer and commitment And after that, Hannah and Elkanah had more kids. A little sidebar on Samuel. You may think of him as a prophet in the Old Testament. You may have, what do we really know about him? If you haven't read the book, as I haven't read the book like in, I don't know, pick a number, 30 years, things are sort of drifting. He became the chief consultant to the nation of Israel. He ended up being the top priest in the nation of Israel, the leading judge, both from decision-making and administrative judge. Um, Think about a county judge, judge, executive in in Harris County, same kind of role. He was the executive of the country. He was a prophet, And he was also the chief military leader. He told people what to do, and they did it. So he was very, God used Samuel. He was was incredibly important in the formation of, he was God's hands as the country of Israel became established as a country. Even after Saul was made um, king, Samuel was still the, ma- the person of phenomenal influence because he tells Saul what to do. He tells Saul what not to do. And when Saul messed up, Samuel said, you messed up and you're in trouble. So Samuel has more power than Saul. Pretty interesting. So anyway... Samuel, incredibly important as a formative leader. 
So we're going to go back to now Hannah and Elkanah. I'm sure you're interested in that sidebar. I was. So here, now, why is this in the Bible? I have no clue. There's any number of other people in the Bible where the narrative just picks up. The Apostle Paul. We don't know anything about his upbringing or birth. King David. We know he was a shepherd. Nothing about his birth. But there's a few people in the Bible whose birth is noted with some detail. And in these cases, they're curious. It wasn't, oh, you know, Phil was the, the seventh son of John and Marge Bronsema, and you know, Marge went into labor on September 15, and around 10 in the evening, Phil was born. You know, none of these births are, are normal. Isaac, his folks, Abraham and Sarah, were apparently in their 90s. Moses, remember, floating in the, in the Nile River. All these people ha- have had big impacts on God's plan for his family. But I still don't know why these happen to be in the Bible. Because there's other people who were very formative in things that happened in the Bible, like King Saul, King David, all the apostles, that we don't have this. So the simple answer is, I have no clue why this is here, but I appreciate that it is. So, they're recorded. So this birth of Samuel, these events, say, okay, it could... One reason I think it's in here is because it was so compelling a story at the time that perhaps Eli wrote it down in the temple records... And 10 or 20 or 30 years later, when Samuel's biographer comes along, you know, he finds it and he says, oh, this is pretty cool. And, and they put it in. But here's the point that we're going to take from this. Elkanah and Hannah are shown as ordinary people. They're faithful and practicing believers. They're rewarded for your, their faith. So what does this mean for you and me? We are not likely to be the next Beth Moore or Billy Graham. One of us might be. Hooray. But all but, you know, we're, we're believers in obscurity by, so, by earthly standards. We're not obscured by God's standards. We are in his family as much as Billy Graham was, as much as Greg Brady, as much as anybody else that you may admire in the Christian faith. We are all the same under God. And therefore, we, are, we also then have the same responsibilities under God to do his will. We are not allowed to say, oh, you know, Greg's in charge here. We got elders, we got Anita, you know, we got Susan playing the piano. We're good, we're good. The answer is no, that's wrong. We are each of us called to obey according to our gifts, our abilities, and our particular situation. 
Matthew 28 says, this is Jesus' words, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make. Baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Great Commission. This is what we're told to do. It doesn't say, a couple of you go out and make disciples, and the rest of you just take it easy. All right? That's not the case. And so that's what, really what the point here is. God fully acknowledges the role of ordinary Christians. We are not called to come to church on Sunday morning for an hour or so. We are called every day to be bold in our faith. It's not optional. Now, what do we do? What I don't want us to do is say, boy, that was pretty good, Phil. I'll give you like a B minus and move on out. Here's what I would like you to do this afternoon. Find at least three minutes of of quiet time. For those of you with kids, good luck. Three minutes. If you're comfortable already in talking about your faith with other people, you give thanks to God and say, how can I use this? If you're like many of us, talking to other people about your faith, for me, that's not something I grew up with. It is not a place where I am comfortable. So I need to pray for courage and for easy situations to get started. But I need to do that. I'm not allowed just to sit back. I need to say, God, I need help here. Please make, help me make it happen. Help me practice. So we are not obscure in God's sight. We are part of his family to serve him. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we are thankful that as part of your family, we are not obscure. We are not way down on your list of people to be concerned about. We are equal members of your family with every other believer. I thank you for that. Help us to use the example of Elkanah and Hannah, where we can see how ordinary people are used doing pretty ordinary things. But they are things that show their faith, show that they live out their faith with compassion and love and persistence. Please help us to do the same. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.